Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Lineage of Majesty. How many of us spend our quiet time with the Lord each morning, meditating upon all the genealogies and ancestries as chronicled in the Bible? Not many of us, huh? Most of us know the genealogies are important, but we don't know their significance. But just wait until we dig into the marrow of the lineage of Jesus and behold the wisdom and infinite care of God in fulfilling all prophecy in and through His only Son, Jesus. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The Lineage of Majesty. Oh, even the title stirs me. I am, I've been waiting for two weeks because I didn't preach last Sunday. I've been waiting for two weeks for this message. The volcano has been bubbling and boiling. And so who knows what's going to come out. You guys already know that I can be loud, but who knows what might come out in this message. Oh, for those of you that are visiting and aren't used to that, uh, when I do get a little louder, it's not purposeful. It's just that I am so excited about these truths. These are truths that have changed me, altered my life, my way of thinking, my way of living. It has affected me in the life level, not just the intellectual level of life. And it has changed me. And I I want it to change you too. So here we are talking about genealogies. And so let's start with 1 Timothy 1.4. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies. (laughs) Which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Well, what is this talking about? Are we supposed to avoid genealogies? Why does God stick a whole bunch of genealogies in the Bible? Are we supposed to avoid them and not have anything to do with them? What specifically this is dealing with, fables in the Greek would be the understanding of mythologies or stories outside of the Bible. All these legendary stories, make sure you are not distracted by these fables. They are not necessarily based in truth. Genealogies are what we see as endless genealogies. The Hebrew culture had a weakness. You see, they found their salvation in and through their lineage. And so they would say, hey, look, I'm of the descendant of so-and-so, who's the descendant of so-and-so, who's the descendant of so-and-so. Here in our culture, we don't do that. We don't brag about our lineage the same way. Now, you may have some famous person in your past, and every now and then you'll drop that in a conversation, sort of like, yeah, I I descend from William Wallace. Uh, (laughs) However, you don't find your salvation in that. But to the Jew, they did. Hey, I'm from Abraham. I'm of the lineage of Abraham. Therefore, I'm on God's good side. And God makes it very clear in the New Testament. You could be of the bloodline of Abraham and be on God's bad side. What? That's impossible. I'm of the lineage of Abraham. You see, the true lineage of Abraham, the true seed of Abraham is Christ. And if you are not in Christ, you are technically not in Abraham the way that you're supposed to be. And so there is actually one genealogy that counts. One. And if you are not found in that line, then you're outside the pale of God's favor. Long and short of it. In other words, there's one genealogy that counts. Not the endless genealogies. I don't want to hear about this genealogy, this genealogy. There's one that counts. And that's the seed line of one named Jesus Christ. And the entire Old Testament when it's dealing with genealogies, you know what it's doing? It's establishing the credibility and the accuracy and the exactitude of one specific line that is taking place in the midst of it all. And that is the seed line of one known as Jesus Christ. And so we talk about the lineage of majesty. This is one powerful, profound meditation. 
Okay, what you see, this is your handout, the lineage of majesty. And so you're going to see Adam being the first one. Adam's the first man. And all, the, all men that have ever been born have come forth out of Adam. And so Adam, and then you look down through, and there's this line which is understood as the line of the seed. You see, there's a prophecy in Genesis that talks about this coming Messiah. And he will be of the seed of a woman. And so from the very beginning of history, you see Satan himself attempting to crush the seed. He wants to destroy the seed line because it's that seed line that is prophesied by God that will one day crush the serpent's head. And so you see that Abraham is the 21st, but he's also, this is hard to do because I can't necessarily just scroll down here, but Abraham is the 21st, but he's also the first of a line. And then you see David as the 14th. And one of the things it says in Matthew is there's 14 generations from Abraham to David. There's 14 generations from David to Babylon, Babylonian captivity. And there's 14 generations from the Babylonian captivity to Jesus. And that's actually what we see. So look on the left side. See the Babylonian captivity. And then you see Jesus. He's, again, the 14th after the Babylonian captivity. But you'll see another line. And you see Joseph and Mary. Technically, you know, that's not a mathematical formula here. Uh, but what you see is in the line of Jesus, in the line of Mary, which technically is the line of the seed. Sort of hard to explain, but that's why I'm giving this message. Jesus is the 77th generation, which is an amazing and interesting number, since the number seven is the number of completion. Seventy is a big number of completion, and then just add another seven on that. It's like this is the completion of completions. It is finished. The last Adam has come. And so... Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, which means he's the beginning, or he's the first, and he's the last. He also says that he's the root and the offspring of David. And so what we just looked at is basically we could say, well, that's like the heritage of David. Yeah, but who started the heritage of David? Jesus. Jesus wasn't born until all those generations, 28 generations after David. How could he have started that? Because you're thinking of Jesus as a mere man. You don't understand that Jesus isn't just a man. He is God. And so the genealogy that we're describing here is extraordinary. It's the lineage of majesty. That the very God who started this whole thing and created the heavens and the earth actually became a player in this drama and was born in a woman of a very, very, very specific bloodline. So that he would be hallmarked as the actual Messiah when he came. So let's talk about the one who will come. Because the Hebrew culture is expecting one who is coming. They're anticipating one. And God over and over throughout the Old Testament is laying a foundation of what this one will be like. He will look like this. This is where he'll come from. And so I'm going to give you very, very specific prophecies in the Old Testament about the one who is to come in regards to his lineage. And I will put, this is the very first one, the classic one that most people understand, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. And between thy seed and her seed. So this woman, who right now we're looking at Eve, she has a seed. And this woman's seed, it will be of the seed of a woman. That's very, very important here as we, as we unfold this. The seed of the woman, what will the seed of the woman do? It shall bruise the serpent's head. 
which is the better word. I don't like the word bruise. Crush, I like it a little better. So a different translations, crush the head of the serpent. You see, a head is a symbol of authority. Right now, in this story, the serpent actually has authority. There's a certain degree of authority that he has because of what is taking place here in this whole failure, this rebellion. And yet there is one who will come who will crush the head of this serpent, but he must be of the seed of a woman. He can't just descend like an angel. He must be born. He must be of the descendancy, in a sense, of Adam. Okay? So, we have, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Then we have another statement in Isaiah 7. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So this, this is just what we, there's going to be a virgin. In other words, there's not going to be a male or a fatherly input into the whole scenario here. Seed of a woman, and that woman now must be a virgin. Without fatherly input, and she will bear a son and shall call his name God with us. Huh. So in other words, this son born of the virgin will be God with us. And then it says in 2 Samuel 7, And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee. Well, who's talking? Well, God's talking to David. So this is very important. When you start hearing about the son of David or Jesus being of the lineage of David, that's very important because of this prophecy. Actually, there's a lot more, but I'm trimming it down so that we can focus in this message. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. See, what's interesting is you can look at this in two ways, and almost all the prophecies in the Old Testament are fulfilled in a micro way and then fulfilled in a macro way in Jesus. Who is the seed of David that built the house of God? Well, that would be Solomon. Well, yeah, but... This is talking about something more than Solomon. Every one of us would have to admit that. It's talking about, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then look at this. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Remember, he must be born of a virgin. He cannot have fatherly input. And as a result, his father must be divine. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Jesse is the father of David. He's in the line of the seed. If you look at your little chart there, you'll see it. Right above David, you'll see it, Jesse. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. So I'm going to emphasize something here. I want you to hold on to this. Seed of a woman, but born of a virgin. Seed of a woman, but God is his father. Huh. Seed of a woman, God is his father, and yet he must be of the lineage of the kingship of David, which is usually inherited through a man. King. Man. So we got a problem here. I don't know if you're starting to pick up on it or if you've ever picked up on it. But we have some biological impossibilities that God is setting up. And you think the one who created the heavens and the earth and made us man, woman, made us to, you know, make babies the way we do, that he would understand these things. 
and that he would stay in accordance with these things. However, he's creating some problems in his prophecies. He's creating impossibilities. By the way, God loves impossibilities. And it shall come to pass when thy days be expired, speaking to David, that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons. So that means the seed must be of the sons of David and will establish his kingdom. So he must be a king, which means he must be of the descendancy of kings. But he must be in the seed of a woman without an earthly father and yet be of the lineage of kings which is inherited through a father. How in the world are we going to do that? I'm glad it's not up to me. And the Lord hath performed his word that he spoke, and I, Solomon, am risen up in the room of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel. Doesn't that seem like Solomon is the fulfillment of this? Well, there's Solomon. However, he's not born of a virgin. And sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised, and have built a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Listen to this. There is one who is going to be born in Bethlehem. He will be ruler of Israel. He will be king. His goings forth have been from of old and from everlasting. Wait a minute. He's the seed of a woman bearing the kingly line of David. But you're telling me that he's eternal? That he doesn't have a beginning? That he's from of old and from everlasting? That doesn't sound like a human to me. But if he's born of a woman, he's human. How does this all work? Could you imagine being a Jew trying to figure this out prior to Jesus? How in the world do these things come together? The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What does Melchizedek have to do with this? Melchizedek, don't confuse us anymore, God. We already know he has to be of the lineage of David. Now if he's of the lineage of Melchizedek, who's Melchizedek? No one has a clue. All we know is he has no beginning or ending, no father or mother. Who is this guy? How is he going to be all these things at once? Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and he shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. You know that in Israel that's an impossibility? Because the priests come from the line of Levi, and the kings come from the line of Judah. You cannot be a priest and a king upon a throne. Uh, that, That doesn't work. God, you must have said something wrong here. He shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Well, that's because he's not going to be a priest after the order of Levi. He's going to be a priest after a higher order, an order that even Levi pays tithes to. And that's an order of Melchizedek. It's a heavenly order. It's of divine origin. You see, there is one who is coming who is going to fit the bill for this biological impossibility. The three descents, the biological impossibilities. Look at them. He must be of the seed of a woman. He must be born. That's how you are a seed of a woman. You're in a womb and you're born. And so he needs to be born like we are in a body. And he must be the heir of the kingly title. He must descend from the kings. A male line. That sounds like fatherly input, doesn't it? That sounds like we have a problem here because he must be born of a virgin. 
And so if he's born of a virgin without fatherly input, how is he going to inherit the kingly title? And he must be of the order of Melchizedek. Well, if he doesn't have any fatherly input, how can he be of the, either the order of the king or the order of Melchizedek, whoever that guy is? How in the world does this work? The test of the seed. So here it is. He must prove the seed of the woman. He must be born in Bethlehem. He must be born of a virgin. He must be of the fruit of the body of David. He must be of the line of Davidic kings. He must be of the line of Melchizedekian priests. His father must be God, and he must prove the son of God. He must be God with us. He must be from of old and from everlasting. You ever tried to work that up in your lineage? It's like, yeah, I'd like to be the Messiah. Okay, I'll try and do that. You see, this isn't something that can be worked from a little infant. An infant can't conjure up a plan to pull this off. This is something that has to be built outside of that baby. You see, God orchestrated something. He set up the impossible and then fulfilled it. You see, Jesus is not a mere man. Jesus is from of old and from of everlasting. But that's impossible. Here's my response. My response. Impossibility schmimschmoshnility. <laughs> but Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Jesus looking upon them saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. You getting the point? The God who has promised. You see, God loves impossibilities. You know what God did? He went on record in the Old Testament, the God who cannot lie, the God who is truth, the God when he promises, he must back it up. His entire nature depends upon it. He will fulfill that which he promises. And he went on record in the Old Testament and said, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? The Messiah will come from the seed of a woman. The Messiah will be born of a virgin. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah will descend from the kings in the Davidic line. He will be of the Melchizedekian order. He will be from of old and from everlasting. His father will be God, and he will be called the Son of God. And we're like, you just can't do that. I cannot figure out how that would work. He says, leave that to me. You see, God set up an entire culture. And in that culture, he made laws. And those laws, most of us look at it like, why did he say that? Well, when you understand that all those laws are there to reveal him, everything is there to showcase the coming Messiah. He fits it. It's like this puzzle piece. You stick it in and the whole thing just works. He is the root and the offspring. He started it, and then he strolls out into the stage of time and matches it. The historic quagmire. You see, if you think it's hard to be the seed of the woman, at the same time be born of a virgin, at the same time to be just born in some random town called Bethlehem, which is a little diddly squat place on the map, and Israel, which is a diddly squat country on the map of the world, and if you, you know, think it's hard to be of the Davidic line of kings 
and prove of the order of the line of Melchizedek at the same time, and then to also prove to be the son of God with God as your father and to have your goings forth from of old and from of everlasting, if you think that's challenging, well, now we have to make it through 77 generations of the devil trying to knock out the seed. In other words, everything about this, the odds are stacked, and you just can see God kicking back in heaven going, do your best. I mean, this is an incredible story. And I, mean, I tell you what, there's so much more detail that I cut out of this. This is the streamlined Eric Ludy long sermon version of this, and it's still so short of what the story actually is. The historic quagmire. Six generations after David, we have a character named Jehoram. And if you knew more about Jehoram, you would boo. He was not a good king. He was a very nasty man. So let's read a little on Jehoram. Second Chronicles 21. Now remember, this is the line of David. If you look on your genealogy list of the lineage, you're going to see six down from David. You're going to see Jehoram. Okay, now he's in the line of Joseph. In other words, Jesus sort of comes from this line. This is the line of the kings. You're going to notice in your chart... If there's a sort of a gold line, even though I don't know how it printed out, I'm not sure if you have color or not. There's a gold line, and that's the line of kings, the line of the title of king. And then you have a red line that goes on the other side of the page, and that's the line of blood. So 2 Chronicles 21, now when Jehoram was risen up to the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and slew all his brethren with the sword. Jehoram had other brothers that were of the lineage of David, of the kingly line. Of course, he was the firstborn, which is why he was the king. But to preserve his kingdom, he slew all his competition. He killed all his brothers. You know that we are down to one man now in this situation? Jehoram. And he's a wicked man. This isn't looking good for the seed. So he slew all his brethren with the sword and divers of the princes of Israel. Jehoram was 30 and 2 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 8 years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, like as did the house of Ahab. For he had the daughter of Ahab to wife, Athaliah. Boo. And he wrought that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord, howbeit the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And as he promised to give a light to him and to his sons forever. So God seems to be backed in a corner here too. He has a wicked man in the line of David, all the other sons, because if the other sons were living, he could just knock out Jehoram and give it to another man. And that man could carry the line of the kingly seed in and throughout uh, unto the Messiah. However, we've got a problem here. Jehoram has gone bad. He's killed off all the other brothers. He's the only one. And he's not looking too good. However, God does not destroy the house of David. 2 Chronicles 21.12, And there came a writing to him from Elijah the prophet, uh-oh, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of David thy father, because thou hast not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat thy father, nor in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but hast walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and hast made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to go a-whoring like the whoredoms of the house of Ahab, and also hast slain thy brethren of thy father's house, which were better than thyself. Behold, with a great plague will the Lord smite thy people, and thy children and thy wives, and all thy goods. And thou shalt have great sickness of disease of thy bowels. That doesn't sound very fun. Until thy bowels fall out. Whoa! 
by reason of the sickness day by day. I didn't write this, by the way. For those of you who are like, eh, that's totally inappropriate, Eric. Moreover, the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and of the Arabians that were near the Ethiopians. And they came up into Judah and broke into it and carried away all the substance that was found in the king's house and his sons also. Whoa, whoa. So Jehoram has sons. Now remember, this is the line. So we have them being carried away. So, and carried away all the substance that was found in the king's house and his sons also and his wives, so that there was never a son left him, save Jehoaz, the youngest of his sons, which actually has another name too, we'll see. And after all this, the Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable disease, and it came to pass that in process of time, after the end of two years, his bowels fell out by reason of his sickness, so he died of sore diseases. And his people made no burning for him. They always burned the bodies, but they made no burning, like the burning of his fathers. Thirty and two years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and he departed without being desired. Howbeit they buried him in the city of David, but not in the sepulchres of the kings." Jehoram is the only one in his lineage. He passes it on through his sons. All his sons are carried away, but one. Can't you just feel the thread line that we're hanging on to? And it's not even a healthy line. You now have the son of Jehoram, who just happens to still be lingering in the area. So we're like, well, I guess the line continues, but I'm not too sure that I want it to continue. Here's our son. Seven generations after David. Second Chronicles 22. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his stead. For the band of men that came with the Arabians to the camp had slain all the eldest. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. Forty and two years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign. And he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri. Boo. Now, if you're astute, you're going to say, I thought she was the daughter of Ahab. Isn't that a funny thing, how the Bible works? That's because Omri is the father of Ahab. So it's basically saying, she comes from Omri, that really Omri guy. Okay? So what we have is, we find out that Athaliah is his mother, which all makes sense, yes. So we have Ahaziah, not a healthy guy, doesn't come from healthy stock. His mother is one of the most wicked people in all of history. If you think Jezebel was bad, this lady's worse. And that's the mother who's his chief counsel. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. But when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, so Ahaziah dies. Okay, I know, that seems like I quickened this story a little. Now remember, we have a line, and it's a very... Delicate line hung on by one, Jehoram, down to one, Ahaziah. And now Ahaziah dies. Saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal of the house of Judah. Oh, no. Oh, no. Are you saying that God has forsaken his covenant? God cannot lie. He has to have a descendant through the line of kings. And yet, Jehoram was down to one. Then Ahaziah, down to one. She killed all? The seed royal of the house of Judah? Well, let's pause here for a second. A quick and necessary meditation. <laughs> I should have put a dot, dot, dot at the end of that last line, too, because there is more. 
A quick and necessary meditation. There's a statement in the Bible, and it's translated this way. The Lord hath sworn. You know what he's sworn? He's sworn that of the fruit of the body of David, there will be a seed that will rise up and take that throne for all time. He's sworn it. He has sworn also that the Messiah will be of the order of Melchizedek. When God swears, he doesn't swear very often. I mean, you could do a study on this. You're going to come up with about seven instances of Jehovah swearing. And yet, they all seem to dovetail around this one issue of, I have promised. And of this seed line, you will see a Messiah. All right? So let's look at this real quick. The Lord has sworn. The Lord has sworn and will not repent that thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's strong language. It's the type of language where you just say, whoa, God, I, think, I get your point. It will happen. God's saying, hey, do you hear me? I didn't stutter, did I? I'm saying it will happen. The Lord has sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. There will be a king from David. He swears it. Whoa. What do you do with that? Did you just read that last line of what Athalia did? Wicked Queen Athalia. Can you believe it? Her son dies and she goes and kills her grandsons. That's not a very healthy woman, by the way. You know why she did it? Because she wanted to be queen. She was queen of Judah. Isn't that the most bizarre thing to even think about? It's like, what a weird thought. There was a queen. Queen of... Uh, and Queen Athalia. I mean, most of us don't study Athalia. It's not a very pleasant subject. But we are down to the dregs. We have just lost our final hope in that line. I mean, we already know it's wicked. We wouldn't blame God for wiping it out except for the fact that he promised. What does God do in this situation? I mean, does he still honor David even though his descendants stink? What's he going to do? What's a great God like our God going to do? You guys are excited, aren't you? (laughs) I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant, thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. We have two different things happening. We have a throne line. And we have a bloodline. It's a seed of a woman. And yet, it's a line of kings. God has sworn. He will not repent of what he has said. He will make it happen. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Jehovah means God, the I am that I am, the eternal existing one, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. So when it says the Lord has sworn, do you know what Lord translates into? It's technically Jehovah. If we were going to translate it correctly, it's Jehovah. It's saying Jehovah has sworn. The, the God that is, the eternal existing one, the same yesterday, today, and forever, the one that doesn't alter, doesn't change, has sworn. When he swears, he means it. We also have a word called Shava, to swear, to promise, to make an oath. You combine those two words, and you get something that says, Yehoshavah. Yehoshavah. And you're saying, why does that matter? The Lord has sworn. Well, let's go back to our story with wicked Athalia. 
This is amazing. Oh, oh, yeah. So oh, this is a quick meditation here. Just before you panic that God has forsaken his promise. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? But when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal of the house of Judah. You know, so I didn't put this next line in for you. But Jehosh, Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, dot, dot, dot. Right, you guys, all right. This is what her name means. But the Lord hath sworn. That's an actual character in history. And when does she show up? Her name is the Lord has sworn. Jehovah has sworn. Athaliah wipes them out, all the seed royal. But the Lord has sworn enters the story. What an amazing thing. So, but when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal of the house of Judah. But Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons that were slain, and put him and his nurse in a bedchamber. Happened. So Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada, the priest, for she was a sister of Ahaziah, this was a sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she slew him not. And he was with them, hid in the house of God six years, and Athaliah reigned over the land. And she didn't know it. Now, I can't go into the story of when this was then revealed in the slain of wicked Queen Athaliah, but it's good. It's really good. It just doesn't pertain to our conversation today. But here's what I want you to know. Jehovah has sworn. It will happen. God cannot lie. He is not a man that he should lie. When he says he will do it, he will do it. I know it seems impossible. I understand if we look at this reasonably from the natural realm, because you can't do that. You can't have the seed of a woman, born of a virgin, yet also of the lineage of kings in and through men, and then also have the descendancy of some Melchizedekian priest. How in the world do you do all these things at once? Here we are 14 generations after David. We are right at the Babylonian captivity, and you want a bad dude that shows up in the line of David. This guy, I don't know who's worse. This guy or all the others before him that we've been referencing, but this guy's a nutcase. I mean, in every regard, the reason they're even taken into captivity is thanks to this guy. If he'd just leave Babylon alone... They'd leave him alone. They're not that interested in him. Instead, he sticks his nose into business that isn't his. And sure enough, they're taken into captivity. But by the way, God's in complete control the entire time. But this guy is not on God's good side. Fourteen generations after David, we're at the Babylonian captivity. So the Babylonian captivity and the blood curse. Thus saith the Lord, write you this man, Jeconiah, childless. A man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. All right. All right, now we have a problem. God must really be getting frustrated. I mean, he was willing to keep his covenant for a certain length of time, but after 14 generations, he's like, that's enough. Okay, I've had enough with this line. Is God going to forsake his covenant with David? No, he's sworn to do it. 
However, what's this then? Thus saith the Lord, write you this man, Jeconiah, childless. What? A man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Huh. What are we going to do? What's God going to do now? He swears and he makes his statement, but now this is the line of the kings, by the way. And God makes it very clear. He's given a blood curse on that line. And this line, the seed of this line will not rule. But he's not saying that there won't be a king of the line of David. So how's that going to work? This is, this is amazing. This is amazing! You guys aren't as excited as you should be. <laughs> All right, Jeconiah, if you look at your genealogy, you're going to see that Jeconiah begets his son, is Shealtiel. And so you said, I thought he was going to be left childless. Well, he is, as you will soon see. He already has Shealtiel. And Shealtiel supposedly begets Zerubbabel. Now, I put supposedly in there because you have to understand how the Hebrew culture works here. Okay, so see if I can explain. This is one of the hardest things to explain, but I'm going to do my best. See if you can wrap your mind around this. A quick and necessary meditation. (laughs) The Leveret Law. There is a law that God established back in the wilderness. And this law is very, very important to the line of the Messiah here, as you will soon see. And you understand why God made this law. Because you can say, why does it matter? Why did God do this? Why does it matter? Well, it matters because of what you're about to read. If If brothers dwell together and one of them dies... And has no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. She should not marry outside of that family. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife. And perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. This is called the Leveret Law. And it shall be that the firstborn which she bears shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead. That his name be not put out of Israel. God establishes something called the Leveret Law. Now, let me explain. I'll come back to this. I know this is a little confusing at first. But, and I don't even want to use an illustration, because, I mean, how in the world do I use an illustration of this? You have two brothers. One's married. And here's the other guy. He's just sort of hanging out over here. (laughs) This guy's married. He dies. Childless. Well, that means his name is not going to be carried on. So, what does the law of God command? It commands that this guy, who's just sort of standing off to the side, the brother, the legal brother of this guy, is actually supposed to marry this wife and to bear children. And when they bear children, do you know whose name that child will carry? It will carry the dead man's name, even though it is not of his seed. So the line will continue, but not of the seed. That's God's brilliance before he even gets to that point. He's like, let's stick in this one law here. And everyone's like, why do we need that? What a strange law. It's amazing. So, if I can explain this. Jeconiah begets Sheltiel, who marries and dies childless. Sheltiel has no children, so the line ceases. However... Padiah, let's see if, uh, this is confusing here. 
Now, if you look at your chart, this is why I gave you the chart, you're going to see, how would I say this? Okay, you see over at the Babylonian captivity, Neri. You see under that, right above on the red line, under Nathan's line, you see Neri. I know it's really small, it's size 8 font. That's the only way I could fit this on one page. Okay, you guys see Neri over there. Neri has a daughter who is widowed because of the Babylonian captivity. That woman marries Jeconiah. (laughs) This is so confusing. She marries Jeconiah. So now what you have is you have bloodline from the red line that is marrying Jeconiah, which causes this woman's natural-born son, whose name is Padiah, to actually be adopted to Jeconiah. So Jeconiah has at least two sons. That's what we know. Sheltiel and Padiah. But Padiah is not a blood descendant of him. But it's his son. You guys following me on that? This is, I know, really hard. Some of you are like, what in the world? So, (laughs) Sheltiel dies childless. Okay, the brother. Remember the other brother? Padiah is just sort of standing over here. The Leveret law kicks in. So, Sheltiel's wife marries Padiah. And Padiah has a son named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel carries on the line of the title, and he's from the bloodline of David. He's in both. Look at that. You'll see that this is the the line that's gold. It's written by Matthew, the Levite. He's looking at the legal line of how Jesus inherited the title of king. The bloodline is written in Luke, the physician. And he's looking at the bloodline of how Jesus is the seed of the woman and still of the descendancy of the fruit of the body of David. They're both true. And somehow, someway, God curses the seed of the Davidic line of kings and yet still keeps that line intact for the inheritance of the kingly title of the Messiah. So Jeconiah begets Sheltiel, who marries and dies childless. Padiah... Of the blood lineage of David, Sheltiel's stepbrother by Jeconiah's marriage to the widowed daughter of Heli, begets Zerubbabel. Yeah, you try studying that one out. So Deuteronomy 25, here's the Leveret Law with our names in it. If brothers, Sheltiel and Padiah, I put the names in it by the way. If brothers, Sheltiel and Padiah, dwell together, and one of them, Sheltiel, dies and has no child, the wife of the dead, Sheltiel's widow, shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother, Padiah, shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn, Zerubbabel, who is no small character in history, by the way, he's the one that returned from the Babylonian captivity and rebuilt the temple of God which she bears shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, and that his name be not put out of Israel. I tell you what, I stand back in awe and wonder of our God. The rescue from the blood curse. Zerubbabel, this is what it says in Scripture, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah. 
He's actually considered legally the son of Sheltiel. However, and the sons of Padiah were Zerubbabel, his firstborn. You see, he's still of the blood lineage of Padiah. However, he's also of the line of Sheltiel, according to the Leveret Law. He carries both the lineage of kings and the bloodline. Who does that remind you of that also rebuilt the house of God? He's a picture of Jesus. It's a foreshadow of Jesus, the one who would rebuild the temple. So when Zechariah, when it starts talking about Zerubbabel, who do you think it's really talking about? Then he answered and spoke unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. And the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. Study Zerubbabel and you will see a picture of Jesus. It's amazing. He's of the lineage of kings and the lineage of the bloodline legally, both and. And yet he's not the Messiah. You see, there is one that comes that will match the exact same framework, but he has to be born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. You see, Zerubbabel's not the Messiah. Testing Jesus on the eight musts. Let's look at our eight musts first. He must prove the seed of the woman. He must be born in Bethlehem. He must be born of a virgin. He must be of the fruit of the body of David. He must be of the line of Davidic kings. He must be of the line of Melchizedekian priests. His father must be God, and he must prove the son of God. He must be God with us. He must be from of old and from everlasting. So number one, he must prove the seed of the woman. Now, I know that most of you, just because of your heritage and the fact that you're hanging in this environment, you probably know that Jesus fits these things. But what I'd like to do is very specifically, not just read the Old Testament, which we already did on these points, but read the New Testament. You see, in the New Testament, it's a very clear chronicle of how Jesus fulfilled all of these requirements. He is the seed of God. He is that true fulfillment of the lineage and the promise. He must prove the seed of the woman. And Mary and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Okay, so we know that he was born of Mary. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. It doesn't say made of a man. It says made of a woman. Isn't that an interesting clarification? You see, all the writers of the New Testament know the impossible descent. They know what the, the canon has stated. They know the lineage of the seed. The Gospels are going through and they're clarifying he is the Messiah. Do you see this? They're laying out the evidence. He did fulfill this. He did fulfill this. He did fulfill this. He is the Messiah. Number two, he must be born in Bethlehem. Well, he was raised in Nazareth. The likelihood of him being born in Bethlehem is just ridiculous. However, there's a taxation called and a census right at the exact point in time that Mary just happens to be nine months pregnant. And because Joseph is of the house of David... They have to go to the house or the hometown of David to be taxed at the very time Mary is great with child. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east. He was born in Bethlehem. Three, he must be born of a virgin. 
Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. By the way, the Holy Ghost is God. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David. He's a son of David. Isn't that amazing? Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. And shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. You see, Matthew is not making any bones about it. He's saying, this Jesus is born of a divine seed. He is not born of a, of a fatherly seed, a natural seed. He's born of God. He is, in fact, the son of God. And if he's the son of God, who's his father? God. Number four, he must be of the fruit of the body of David. And Jesse begat David, the king, and David, the king, begat Solomon. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. He came from the fruit of David. And I'll show that. I'll walk that through with you guys on your your charts here in just a second. David, we can go both directions. And you're going to find that David had two sons of Bathsheba, Solomon, who we all would say, oh, that's in the line of the seed. Well, it's a line of the title of kings. But actually, Mary is descended from Nathan. If you read the book of Luke, it'll give the genealogy of Mary. And it shows of the bloodline that Jesus was born. It's really interesting because the, uh, the genealogy in Matthew and in Luke is different. It's because it's talking about two different people. It's talking about Joseph in one and Mary in the other. However, it still classifies Jesus as being Joseph's son, but not by bloodline. So by bloodline, we see it goes over to Nathan and then all the way down through Mary. Okay, but he is born of the fruit of the body of David. Okay, that's, an, that's just a very clear and, uh, and demonstrated thing. Number five, he must be of the line of Davidic kings. And so, of course, in your genealogy, you can see the same exact thing. That, that gold line is actually of the line of kings, and because of the miracles that, he, that God worked in and through the process. Now, this is a strange thought, but not many of us think of Joseph of being in the line of kings. The father of Jesus was of the line of kings. They just were not putting kings on thrones in those days. However, he's of the legal inheritance of, of the line of king. Isn't that a strange thought? I mean, what a bizarre thought that is. Jesus is of the line of kings. He must be of the line of Melchizedekian priests. Melchizedek, I'm not exactly sure what the Hebrew mind was on Melchizedek. Talk about a strange story. And then to hear in Psalm 110 that Jesus, and God swears it, Jehovah swears that this one, known as Jesus, known as the Messiah, will be of the order of Melchizedek, who's a priest. That's the one thing we know about him. He was a priest. And even Abraham paid him tithes. So he's higher than Abraham. He's of a higher order. He's of a higher lineage even than Abraham. The Jews can boast all they want, but there's a higher order. It's called the heavenly order. You see, Melchizedek, 
however you want to describe him, is a priest of heaven. And he's of divine origin, and Jesus is of that divine origin. It's supernatural, it's divine, it's called God. He must be of the line of Melchizedekian priests, for he of whom these things are spoken pertains to another tribe. You see, Jesus is a priest, but he's not after the order of Levi. He's of a higher order, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. You see, the Levites attended the altar here on earth, but no man of the, Levitic, of the Melchizedekian order of priests ever attended the altar here. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Number seven, his father must be God and he must prove the son of God. Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is born in her is of the Holy Spirit ghost. You know that Jesus was born of God, of supernatural descent? His father is actually God. Even in his natural human state, his father is God. He is both the son of man and the son of God simultaneously. The miracle that we always talk about in the Holy Scriptures, that it's written by men, but it's also carried along by God, is the same miracle of the word of God made flesh. He's the son of man, written by man, and yet 100% God. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is this is not just an angel. This is a son. God never spoke this to an angel, but he spoke it to his son. God said, You art my son. God is the father of Jesus Christ. How did Jesus Christ arise? He didn't arise through the seed of a man. He was born of a virgin, of the seed of a woman, of the lineage of David, both in blood and in title of king. How did he inherit the kingship of David? In and through Joseph. You see, in the Hebrew culture, Mary, being married to Joseph, legally it caused Jesus to inherit his father's line. So by adoption into the position of Joseph's line, even though he's not of the seed descent of Joseph, he inherits the line and the title of Joseph. Though he is born of a virgin or the seed of a woman, and he's of the Melchizedekian heavenly fatherly order. The biological impossibility has happened. Number eight, he must be God with us. He must be from of old from of everlasting. For by him, Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. We're not just talking about a man that was born 2,000 years ago. How does a man born 2,000 years ago create the heavens and the earth? 
This is one whose goings forth are from of old and from everlasting. You see, all these things are true about Jesus. He fulfilled the impossible Messiah test. His lineage is supernatural. There's no earthly way of describing it. God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. God made the worlds through his Son. The twice-born. Well, that's us. Now, we just discussed a lineage, a genealogy, a descent, Adam, Seth, and onward, through Abraham. And then we go through Isaac, Jacob, Judah, down to David. And then we see a split of a title of kings, and we see a split into a bloodline. Through the seed of Mary, seed of the woman, through blood, and yet the title of a king in and through Joseph. We've seen something extraordinary just by looking at that page. 77 generations. The entire while, the devil is hell-bent on crushing the seed and destroying it. However, he cannot stop it. It is a freight train, and God has sworn. It was established. Supernaturally, it was done. Where do you fit into this? What does it matter? Just knowing that Jesus lived a supernatural life, that he was a descent in a supernatural way, how does that affect us? His genealogy is meant to be our genealogy. You see, faith in Christ causes you to be placed in Christ, is the concept in the New Testament. When you believe in Christ, you are actually placed inside of his life. You know what that means? You are of his descent. You share in his life. And so, we are meant to be born again. You see, our descent is not very impressive. I don't know how many of you could brag about you know, being of the descent of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then through David, and of the line of kings, and through blood, and all these things, and have some great story to tell. Yeah, we're sort of bland next to all that. However, you know that our testimony is actually greater than any Hebrew. We are in Christ. And they're like, but I'm in Abraham. Well, I'm in Christ. And Christ is superior. Christ is not just a man. He's God. And so when we are born into Christ, we are born again. And let me see if I can walk through this with you. We're called the twice born. But as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, to them gave he power, which is legal right, to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is a hard thing to fully wrap our mind around. But when we believe, we are brought into the person of Jesus Christ. And in the person of Christ, Christ is born of God. And we have access to the very life, the same Holy Spirit that conceived him is the Holy Spirit that is given to us, that cries out within us, Abba, Father. What's it doing? It's bringing us to life, but in a new way. We become a new creation. What is that new creation? Is that a creation of man? Is that something that just comes through a, a human womb? No. It's a supernatural recreation of our life, and we become sons and daughters of God. 
Whoa. Whoa. You see, I'm not anything important. My descendancy and my descent, my lineage stinks. Well, I don't want to criticize my parents and their parents. I come from seven generations of pastors. However, we can't save ourselves. We're of the corrupt nature of Adam. We've inherited all his junk, all that blood curse. Yeah, it went straight down to us. We're sunk. But if we believe in Jesus, we gain legal right to become the sons of God. Adoption is the concept of us who were born outside of the lineage. We're not descended from God. I don't know about you, but I'm going to testify to myself. I was not born of God. So my natural descent is of Adam. And I'm outside that womb of God. I'm outside that life. But through faith, I am brought in, legally brought in to that womb. And there's a conception that takes place. It's called a new birth. And the Holy Spirit changes me. And I become born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I am born again. And my new life is actually the life of God. You see, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but it's not I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in this body, I live by the faith of the Son of God. You see, this is the testimony of the believer. It's a new birth. We become twice born, but born into what? Born into the lineage of majesty. I didn't pull off any of that lineage, by the way. I didn't do the work of the cross. I didn't do the work of the resurrection, but I'm invited into it. All I must do is believe, because that's why he did it all. He did it all. All that lineage, all this supernatural work, the entire construction of the Hebrew culture, all the laws, all the sacrifices, the temple, the manna, the rock in the wilderness, all the prophecies... What was it for? It was so that when he came, we would recognize what he was doing and we would believe. You see, his great work of being born as a baby, growing up in the skin of an Adam, born of the seed of a woman, all of these things fulfilled all righteousness when he died upon that cross and when he was buried and when he resurrected. It was finished and a way was established for us to enter into him. There was a legal path made, legal right For us to become sons of God. The impossible has happened. Not just in the lineage of Jesus, but in our lives. There's a biological impossibility for you to descend from God. And yet, he has made a way. And suddenly your lineage has shifted. And you're like, yeah, I'm of God. Yeah, I'm born of God. Seems a little boastful, doesn't it? If you're going to boast in anything, that's what you want to boast in. He did it. He did it. I didn't do really anything in this other than believe. He did it. He did the work. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. See, I'm not just coming up with this. That's what it says. We typically call it born again, but in the modern times, we shy away from that term because that sounds fanatical. Are you born again, brother? It's like, oh boy, that's like one of those crazy guys. Well, that's, that's what it is, though. Are you born again? You could, you could be of the lineage of Abraham, but are you born again? Have you become the twice born? 
Have you believed in Jesus? You can know all about Jesus, but have you believed in Jesus? Have you entered into his person? Have you taken advantage of the legal right that has been given you? That by faith you can access his life. You see, under the law of sin, you die. Law of sin and death. You disobey, you rebel, you die. But if you believe, you live. Two trees. One tree, if you eat of the fruit, you die because it's rebellion. The second tree, you eat of that fruit known as Jesus Christ, you live. It's called obedience. We correct that which was wrong here. What did they do wrong in the garden? They didn't believe. What corrects it? Belief. You correct and say, I believe him. I stand with him. I'm not going to stand with the serpent on this one. I repent of that and I turn and I say, I believe. Jesus, you are my God. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loves him that begat loves him also that is begotten of him. It's just one of these interesting things that John says. John is so overly simplistic that it's uncomfortable for us. He says, and those that love God, the one that gave us life that begat us, well, then they will also love those that are begotten of him. So we will love the body of Christ. If you're not loving the body of Christ, oh, you're not born of God. That's what John would say. Oh, yeah, you're not born of God then. You need to be born of God. Because if you were born of God, you would love each other. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. So if you haven't overcome the world, oh, you're not born of God then. You see, these are just the natural fruitions of what takes place when you are twice born. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. We know that whosoever is born of God sins not, but he that is begotten of God keeps himself, and that wicked one touches him not. You see, if you're born of God, then you're not the plaything of the enemy anymore. You belong to God, and you're kept. You're kept pure and spotless in a darkened age. Now, I know every single one of us could be convicted on this little list here. And what I want you to do is turn afresh unto that tree of life and say, I want the full measure that comes with being born of God. I don't want to live this in-between, in this shadow land here. I want to live fully for Jesus Christ. I want to evidence that I am born anew. And that's what Christianity will offer you. Jesus is not like saying, "Ah, I don't know if I really want to help you with that. This is why he came. You know, that entire lineage was to bring you here. It was to give you right into himself so that you could be born anew and made a picture of his life here on this earth. John 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, by the way. I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, who, by the way, was a descendant of Abraham, And should have it all figured out. If there's anyone that has salvation, it's someone who's born of Abraham, right? Of the lineage of the seed of Abraham. That's what all the Jews would say. We have salvation in that. No, 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 you don't. Nicodemus saith unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? That's an interesting question. How can you be born again when you're old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? These are good questions. Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. You see, if you're never born of water in the first place, you don't have much life, right? But then you also must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit of God. And that can only happen through the legal right of faith in Christ, of entering into Christ. You are brought near unto the throne of grace where the Spirit of God is made accessible to you. 
so that you can be born again. And then that spirit enters into you and cries out, Whoa, you're my father. You see, we have a knowing within us that we are the sons and daughters of God because the spirit of God has moved in. We have been changed. We have been made new. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, according to the body, he was made after the seed of David and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness and by the resurrection from the dead. There's a very interesting line here. You see, he is declared to be the son of God. Look at the last one by the resurrection from the dead. Well, he was the son of God long before that. However, the recognition that he was the son of God came. The final testimony of his divineness came from his resurrection. You see, he rose again. Surely he was the son of God. You know, one of the testimonies of your sonship or daughtership, however you'd like to say it, the fact that you were born again, well, you rose from the dead. You're a new creature in Christ. It's the same thing. Surely they are born again. And that's what we would say. Surely they are born again. They're demonstrating the new life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We're evidencing it. We are showing a newness of life. Surely they were born again. And they were born not just of water, but of spirit. The prophetic lineage of Jesus Christ. Okay. This is exciting. I've been waiting two weeks for this one. I'm going to finish by reading something to you. And what this is, is this is 77 generations. And in the Hebrew, Hebrew names of all of these people that you see in this list, they all have Hebrew meaning. That's the amazing thing about the Hebrew naming system is they're like sentences. They like say something. So what I did is I basically said, this lineage is a picture of Jesus. That's what it is. He is the seed. And so, what would happen if you wove together all the names of the lineage of the seed? And I I did it two ways. I did it from Adam, through David, through Solomon, down through Joseph to Jesus. And then I did Adam, through David, over to Nathan, and down through Mary to Jesus. I would like you to just listen. Behold The power of our God. This is extraordinary. Jesus, the Messiah, Yeshua, the one to come. The one whose goings forth shall be from of old and from everlasting. Let's listen. He will be the last Adam. Standing redemptively in the place of another. The people of this earth are his possession. And for the praise of God, he has come down to make a way. When he dies, there will be an outpouring. His death will be as a weapon. He is brought low that he may prove powerful. He will bring rest and will be a resting place. His name will be famous among those who have been cut off from the breast and bound in the enemy's stronghold. For he calls them his possession. He will enter this earth as a tender shoot, as one from the heavenly region. He will divide even the closest friends. He will be a branch burning with resolve when he takes up residence here. He will be the father of a multitude, the chief of a mighty host. He laughs at the deceiver and supplanter and overcomes. 
He shall be praised, and the breach he will fortify and close and wall in. He is exalted, the royal seed who will crush the head of the hissing enchanter. So now let's go down to the royal lineage. This is through David, down through Solomon, to, through Joseph, and to Jesus. He will be a covering, a garment. And in him is strength. He will come serving to make wealthy his beloved and bring peace and enlarge for himself a people. He will say, Jehovah is my father. He will be harmed, but then healed, hurt, but then made whole. It will be said that he, had God, that he, God, has judged, and he, God, is exalted. He will prove the strength of God and the perfection of God. He will possess in his hand the power of God, and though he is forgotten of his people, he will prove the master builder and divinely heal them. And he, God, will set and make strong those who ask of God, those born in captivity. He will say, My Father is majesty. He will be raised up by God to be a helper, to be the righteous one. God will raise him up for God's praise, majesty, and splendor. He will be the help of God, a gift. And to Jacob, he will Joseph and prove Jesus. I just put that in there just so that you guys could appreciate this. He will Joseph and prove Jesus. I'm sorry. And to Jacob, he will Joseph and prove Jesus. You see, Joseph, the father of Jesus, by adoption, his father's name is Joseph, and Joseph's father is Jacob. So what that means is, in other words, to the heel-grabbing supplanter, he will exchange out life for death and bring God's salvation. All right, let's look through the blood lineage. This is Nathan down through Mary, and then to Jesus. He will be a covering of garment, and in his strength he will come serving to make wealthy his beloved and give the gift of God. He declares to those under the enchantment that they are his dearest object of care and that he will raise them up. He will be the giver of grace, life in exchange for death. They will praise God who hearken unto him and join to him in covenant. Those who receive the gift of God, the one whom God has exalted, will find the help and salvation of God. They will be sustained by God, be quickened, made awake, and made alive. He will be measured according to the king's divine oracles. He will be adorned as king. He will be a heavenly light unto all who ask of God and those born in captivity. He will heal and give grace. He shall be praised for he gives life in exchange for death. To those who hearken the good tidings, he gives the gift of God unto the small. He is the bright light unto those whose eyes are fixed on God. And he is a consolation and comfort unto the burdened. The gift of God is life in exchange for death. It's the violent action of the king in order to join in covenant. The gift of God raises us to heavenly heights and gives life and liberty in exchange for death and rebellion and brings us God's salvation. Oh, that's the lineage of majesty. Mary's name means rebellious. It's not the strangest definition. I mean, who's going to name their child Mary? It means rebellious. Where will the seed of God be born in? It'll be born in a woman whose name is rebellious. This is amazing. Eve, she rebelled. She ate of the fruit. She turned against the word of God. And she rebelled. What does Mary do? Mary is the true woman of whom the seed of God was born in. But her name means rebellious. And yet God in this whole thing rectifies that which was wrong in the garden. He uses a woman and corrects it all. We are the bride of Christ. Be it unto me according to thy will. 
and we turn and believe. And then the life of God is born in us, in the rebellious. And there is redemption that is brought. And that which comes forth out of the rebellious is pure and holy and righteous. And then he rises from the dead. And who comes to his grave but women? And he reveals his life unto the rebellious. How much? Almost all of them were named Mary. It's true. And who does he entrust with the gospel to even bring it to the apostles? He is taking that which went wrong and he is restoring it in and through the womb of a woman. And by the way, we are to be that virgin in which the life of Christ is born afresh. We are to be the habitation of God through which the seed, the fruition of God comes forth into this earth. Yes, we are the rebellious. But we have the privilege of giving rise and life to the Messiah in and through turning in faith to the one who did that great work on that tree and saying, I, the rebellious, need what you, the perfect, have done to restore and to rectify and to redeem that which the enemy has destroyed. I turn to you. And in the process, we become the very temple of God, the very dwelling place of that seed, the righteous branch, the seed of David, Jesus Christ. What a privilege this is. I want us to stand back in awe and wonder at the majesty of our God. He has done it. Yes, it's impossible, but impossible, shmimpossible, shmimnossible. That wasn't very good. He loves the impossible. And he has done the impossible in and through us all over again. Let's cherish that fact today. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.